you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS in Pasadena for a morning of multilingual readings, interactive performances, and lots of kid fun. It's Super Fun Saturday on June 1st. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. From the Mom Broadcast Center, this is Take Two, May Martinez. About 5,000 young people experience homelessness in L.A. County. The reasons vary from abuse or conflict in the home. kind of feel like my entire childhood was was taken from me, you know? To economic insecurity experienced by entire families. And just like that, we were out on the street. We didn't belong anywhere. Now, after a year of a global pandemic, advocates worry those numbers could climb. It's all ahead on Take Two. Stay with us. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at Elias.com slash sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. May Martinez, thanks for joining us today. And today, we are devoting the next hour to a single issue, and that's youth homelessness. About 5,000 young people are currently experiencing it in Los Angeles County. Now, the reasons vary from abuse and conflict in the home to housing and economic insecurity experienced by entire families. And now, after more than a year of a pandemic, advocates worry those numbers could climb. That was the focus of a panel discussion I moderated last Thursday, examining the intersection of youth homelessness and mental health. It was produced in conjunction with Call to Mind, American Public Media's initiative to foster new conversations about mental health. Coming up, we'll speak with experts from local agencies about the help that is available. But first, we're going to hear from three young women who experienced homelessness as teenagers and a warning some of what is discussed could be upsetting for certain audiences. Now, our guests are Angela M. Sanchez, a writer and alum and board member of School on Wheels, Inc. That's an organization that provides tutoring to homeless students. Also with us, Jennifer Myers on the advisory board for the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority and is an advocate for foster and homeless youth. And also with us, Sarah Fay, a peer navigator for the Venice-based organization Safe Place for Youth, connecting food and housing insecure college students with services. Angela, let's start with you. I understand that uh, you lost your home when you were a teenager and ended up in a shelter with your father. Can you tell us a little bit about what that experience was like for you? So to really encapsulate everything, one thing I want folks to understand is that the condition of being homeless is owed to trimorbidity. In other words, it's a coalescence of several things at once. And for my family, it was an unfortunate perfect storm. Uh, the recession was just starting to feel its first tremors throughout our country. My dad, whose background had been in architecture, although he did not have a uh, college degree or a license, he usually had the title of draftsman, but did all the work of an architect, was out of work at that time because we had the collapse of the housing boom. And so after being chronically out of work, we would find ourselves strapped very thin, unable to make rent for a couple months on end. And by November 2007, just one week shy of Thanksgiving, we lost our home. And the day that we were evicted, I'll never forget it. I'll never forget when the officers um, came over to change the locks on our door and escort us out. Um, I remember being um, told by the officer who brushed past me, excuse me, ma'am, and the first reaction I want to have was, ma'am, I'm 16 years old. I don't, I'm not a ma'am yet. I can't even vote on any of the dumb policy that says I have to leave the only home I'd ever known. 
And just like that, we were out on the street. We didn't belong anywhere. And so we went, uh, we went first into our car and then traveled around and eventually wound up at a motel. Eventually my father's credit ran out and we bounced from there to a cold winter shelter, which for the uninitiated, a cold winter shelter is you have a cot. Sometimes there's dinner provided, but you wake up at 5 a.m. the next morning. There are no showers, no um, hygienic facilities. You're just back out on the street. And as a teenage girl on her period, I'm going to get a little bit real here, I felt filthy. I was washing up in the public restrooms of different fast food restaurants. But more than anything, the one thing I want to do was go to school because that let me feel normal. And at school, I got to be a nerd. I got to be a teacher's pet. I got to be all these flattering titles, right? Um, but I didn't have to be homeless. And so to make a very long story short, eventually my dad and I were admitted into a family shelter that came with its own basket of um, different constraints. Uh, curfew was out at nine, lights were out at nine, which means that um, I was a high school student with five AP classes. I didn't go to bed at nine. Uh, my dad spoke to the shelter's director. I got until 10 o'clock in the evening. Didn't go to bed at 10 o'clock either. If I stayed up past curfew, however, and was caught for doing my homework, I was breaking shelter rules. You break shelter rules three times, you can get evicted from a shelter. So this is how the exhausting, self-perpetuating cycle of poverty works. The bright light in this and all this, the breath of fresh air beyond my own immediate family was also School on Wheels, Inc., and I was lucky to get a tutor through that program, um, specifically a math tutor. And uh, I didn't just get a math tutor. I got a astrophysicist from Caltech to help me with my, with my Calc homework. So uh, it was having supportive organizations like that that really made a difference for me uh, and gave, gave me a chance to connect to someone who saw me not as hashtag homeless kid, but as someone who was a young person with aspirations and dreams beyond my present circumstances. And I think that that's something that's lost in the experience of being homeless and the larger public perception of homelessness. And that's really telling, Angela. Yeah. When you told a story about how, excuse me, ma'am, I mean, you're a kid, as you mentioned, and you're expected to handle things that adults shouldn't be asked to handle, but they are. And, and that, that, Part of what you just mentioned was was really really telling, Jennifer. Uh, you were in foster care. How did you end up homeless, and and, and for how long? Um. Well, I mean, um, being in foster care for one is a strain on the mental within itself because you have so many emotions of why you're in foster care. You don't understand what you did wrong to be in foster care. Um, and that was my predicament. Like I lived with my family um, ever since I was a baby. I did bounce around my family members until I ended up with my aunt. And um, I stayed with her and I, I eventually she turned to drugs, you know, and she stopped being able to really care for me thoroughly. And I ended up having to get taken away at the age of 10. At this time, I'm a preteen already. Like I'm already like so used to something already, a certain environment being with family. So switching to complete strangers and having to worry about people liking me and actually wanting me in their home was tough because I'm like this, this tall, dark girl, like, you know, coming into the system and I'm always been placed with, you know, ethnicities that are not of my same, you know, race and, I've always had to, you know, try to fit in. So I started running away from placement at the age of 10. And let me tell you, it is, it was not the thing to do. Like I was wanting to be fast. I was confused. I was feeling abandoned. I was feeling all type of things. So being on the streets from about the age of 10 to, I want to say, 15, 
I was doing all different types of things. I had to survive, you know, and um, I was a victim of human trafficking. And when I say I felt like I had no resources, like literally I'm a minor trying to escape the life, the fast life, you know, having to worry about running away from this person and then seeing them later on again. And then they're trying to hit me with their car because of the rules of the game, you know, and um, I was um, homeless, like on and off due to um, my my lack of feeling in place. Like I yeah. felt like I didn't fit in. You know, on that, let's let me bring in Sarah Faye in here a second. Uh, you know, just hearing the two stories uh, before you, Sarah. How does all this wear on someone mentally? How did it wear on you mentally? Oh well, it was definitely um, it was definitely a challenge. You know, um, going through different cycles of of abuse at home, and then the transitioning between the foster care um, placements and you know, similar to Jennifer, having to deal with being placed in the homes of a different culture or just a different way of life than what I was already accustomed to. It was, it was difficult to really feel like you belonged. And that feeling does a lot, I feel like, to a young individual. It, it not only makes you feel out of place, but then you're kind of like searching for your own self-identity in the meantime, you know, because you kind of feel like you lose a part of yourself or you lose all of yourself at that time. And um, it's difficult. It is difficult. And not having that support system or not having those resources available or that they may be available, but not knowing about them, it just makes that challenge a little bit harder. Um, I was able to really benefit at least at a certain point from the therapy and counseling services that I had available and that I was mandated to go to. Well, actually, I'll take that back. I think I started to take advantage of them when I wasn't so mandated to go to them because when I was, I was like, I hate this. This is the worst thing. This is not doing me any good. You know, when the court orders that you have to do counseling five times a week and then you still have school and you're still trying to be a regular kid. And it was like, I kind of feel like my entire childhood was, was taken from me, you know, being in the system. It's like, you have to grow up so fast. Yeah. Being a foster kid, you are never normal. That's Jennifer Myers, an advocate for foster and homeless youth. Sarah Faye, a peer navigator for Safe Place for Youth. And also Angela M. Sanchez, an alum and board member of School on Wheels, Inc. All three were homeless as teens. We continue our conversation after the break. Parole is our love letter to Los Angeles. We'll tell you where to get a yummy torta, a bowl of kanji, and of course, a burger. It's a beef sausage blend, fried egg, grilled onions, and then raspberry jam. What hiking trails to check out. This feels like we're out in the mountains. And where to take in some culture. Lamert Park, they've been fostering jazz for decades. LA's a big place with a lot going on. So we got you. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. LAist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite LA restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm e. Martinez. Today, we're talking about the intersection of youth homelessness and mental health with three guests, Angela M. Sanchez, an alum and board member of School on Wheels, Inc., Jennifer Myers, an advocate for foster and homeless youth, and Sarah Fay, a peer navigator for the organization Safe Place for Youth, connecting food and housing and secure college students with services. And a reminder that these are difficult conversations that might be triggering for some people. Angela, you mentioned uh, uh, going to school and, and trying to study, which I, I still can't believe you're going to get penalized for 
for doing homework uh, with your AP classes. But what was that like for you, the whole school experience and the instability underneath you? Because I think for for a lot of students, students that don't deal with the things that uh, you've had to deal with, having stability at home, having a place to study, to, to rest your mind when studying is over, I think leads to successful outcomes in school. But how did you deal with that? Yeah. So, um, and I, I think Sarah may also, um, be able to speak to this as well. Um, so I lacked a lot of what are called in the higher ed space, basic needs. Uh, and that can include everything from shelter to, uh, food security, as well as just some of the basic things that come with, um, being able to be successful academically, but these are everyday needs that impact your simple day-to-day. So yes, not having appropriate lighting, a desk to study at, a quiet place to study at, which we've seen many of our students struggle with in the wake of the pandemic right now, because you can't go to school, so that environment is shut down. Libraries aren't open, even cafes or other areas where you might have at least some of the basic amenities to sit quietly for a little while also are not viable options either. And so for kids who um, may be living in a motel, for instance, it's you and all your siblings trying to also cram on to any type of internet connectivity you can get a hold of um, if you should be so lucky as to have a digital device to connect to the internet and go to school. For me, I was fortunate in that, um, one, I got to physically actually go to my high school I got to sit in a classroom and I got to be there. I didn't tell anyone that I was homeless. My dad actually gave me that option. And so I decided not to because I got to have that mental break. We're talking about mental health here. So I did not have to fixate on the heaviness of my family situation. I, again, got to adopt that identity of teacher's pet and all that jazz. And so I got to be, quote unquote, normal for the time that I was in a classroom. Also, we have in our society a very strong stigma against poverty and especially against homelessness. It's one of the few populations that you can still say the in front of and no one checks you on it. And it assigns a monolith to a group of people that have so much nuance, which you're even just hearing in these three different stories right now, too. So long story short, being in school gave me that kind of space and refuge to mentally rest myself. But outside of that, the shelter was a completely different story. Jennifer, what about you? You experienced homelessness for three years and, and, and that instability that's there. How did how did that affect you mentally? Um, I think it sent me more deeper into a depressed state of mind. Um, I believe that I've tried to commit suicide multiple times because I felt like, what was I still here for? And then in the process of me becoming um, homeless and being homeless, I was a teen a teen mom. I became pregnant and um, my baby was born with health problems. My mom died while I was pregnant, um, my birth mom. And it was a lot, you know. Um, So I think that it really just sent me on a spiral. I felt like nobody cared or even wanted to know what was going on with Jennifer. So um, I think that once, as I got older, like once I turned 18, I did start going to college and stuff like that. And I pre I created a support base through school, like with my counselors, my teachers, my peers, um, I don't know. I I guess that there was just something inside of me that's just is not allowing me to fail and or give up on anything that I have deep in my soul that I just want to bring out to the world. Sarah, you also went through a period similar to the stories that we're hearing. You got to college as well. What tools did you use to get to that point? Tell us your experience leading up to that point and what were the tools that helped you get there? So for me, one of the really big initial tools that got me into college was while I was in high school, um, all throughout high school, I did uh, take, uh, I was in a class called AVID. 
So AVID stands for Advanced Via Individual Determination. And this class is meant to gear high school students into college. Um, it helps go through like expectations, applications, basically prepares you to be a good college student and prepares you to go to college. Now, when I had graduated from high school in 2012, I considered going straight into college, but at that time there was a lot going on in my life. We had just lost our housing and, um, you know, had nowhere to go. So at that point, I just kind of decided to take a break from, from school for a little bit. Um, but a couple years later, I ended up getting talked to talked into going to school basically from a friend of mine. And since then, I just kind of uh, stuck it out and pushed through. And here I am four years later, and I've graduated with my BA in sociology now. And, um, but during my time at West LA College, um, some of the programs and the supports that were there is what really like helped me finish. It's it was the Guardian Scholars Program, and I remember the first day uh, stepping in that office, just all of the support that was there by the program assistants and the program director um, of Guardian Scholars was just so amazing. And, and she helped connect me to all of the resources that I needed for mental health, for yeah. uh, connecting me to the to Safe Place for Youth, which now I work for. Uh, she helped, uh, helped let me uh, advocate on behalf of community college students uh, experiencing homelessness down at LASA, at the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority board meetings. So I would go down there and advocate. So just all the opportunity that I had provided to me from West LA College is really what what kept me hanging on there. And Sarah, I could tell by the tone of your voice when you were talking about that right there and the way your face looked is that when you were getting these tools, it's almost like you remember them as you had a sense of hope. Like hope was finally there for you to be able to help you get through this. Um, Angela, you mentioned you kept your situation quiet at school. Was there any counseling or therapy available to you that that uh, at the time that might have might have helped you, you know, move forward through this? No, <laughs> I think that's Nothing a short right. answer, unfortunately. Um, but I, I will also say, though, one of the reasons, one of the other underlying reasons that um, both my dad and I decided to keep quiet about it was because one of the biggest concerns was if we told someone I was going to school outside of a district from where I lived, our shelter was in Pasadena. And so there became a concern, well, if I'm going to high school in Glendale, won't I have to transfer over then to Pasadena Unified? What happens to all of my coursework, my friends, the tiny sliver of stability that I still had? It would all get flushed down the drain. What we didn't know, of course, were about policies like the McKinney-Vento Act, which says that if you go, if a child loses their home in District A and winds up in District B, the child then may continue or the student may continue their work in the district of origin. And uh, of course, these are things I didn't know. So I'm sure we can get to this later in the conversation, but there's a dearth of resources. And on top of that, a total lack of communication. And I would say a lot of it is owed to the stigma of homelessness. In our larger society, we're in a space where we don't talk about those things. Um, Jennifer, you're, you're an advocate for foster and homeless youth. Uh, this question comes from Graham DiGiuseppe in Los Angeles. How would you say this very strange last year has affected the physical and mental health of the population of kids that you aim to help? Baby, let me tell you, it affected them on all types of levels because of the simple fact that we can't provide thorough services as we could, like, at, that we could provide if it wasn't a quarantine. It's just too many requirements now for, there are some youth that are against getting vaccine, vaccinated or even taking the test. So some programs, like, they won't let youth into the program if they haven't been vaccinated or if they haven't been, haven't taken the test. So that's like another stigma that we're trying to, you know, get under wraps and get under control because 
I think that um, a lot of youth are needing counseling, um, uh, somewhere to shower, you know, somewhere to just be able to get hygiene. Sarah, in in your work, you help connect housing and food insecure college students, much like yourself with resources. What's this past year been like for you and others in your situation? Oh, that's a great question. It's definitely been hard. I will say that one of the most challenging parts of of what I do and over the past year would have to be just that disconnection between the resources and the individual. So that like Jennifer was mentioning, there's tons of resources that are available, but actually being able to utilize them is a, is very difficult, especially for students because students fit into a very specific population. So most of the time they're not eligible for a lot of the uh, programs that have high barriers and um, specific requirements because they just don't necessarily meet those. Um, Or it could be because of scheduling, you know, they're in class, they're trying to work, they're trying to do everything they can to provide themselves with the basic needs. So, you know, for example, like food banks, they're only open for very short amounts of time during a day and on certain days out of the week. So for a student to be able to go to a food bank between 10 to 12 on a Wednesday, and that's the only time this particular food bank is open, that's not the easiest to do. Um, Yeah, because I'm not going to be hungry anytime after those hours. (laughs) Sorry, sir. Exactly. Or for students that live in their vehicles, you know, like I was for a long time, it's hard to utilize all of the food resources that you do get from food banks, for instance, because let's say it's a bunch of canned products and I go to my car and I'm staying in my car. How am I going to use this canned food? I'm supposed to just have like a, a table just set up right there and like a can opener and like all of these things to be able to like actually eat it. It's not, it's not actually feasible. And, and on top of that, with everything being virtual, you know, over this past year, it's been hard to really make that solid connection with other students that I've worked with just because of network connections or scheduling conflicts. And then, it's just a number of things that have been uh, a barrier to making that that uh, solid connection as if it were in person, you know, and having that set place and time where a student would be able to come meet with me to get all of the resources that they're in need of hasn't been provided just because of this pandemic. Angela, I want to get this question in for you. It comes from Michelle uh, Michelle Hernandez in Anaheim, and she writes, I'm going to be a teacher, and I want to know how homelessness might affect the mental health of my students. Angela, what should teachers be aware of, potential prospective teachers be aware of? Oh, my goodness. So many things. Well, one, um, when you're homeless, uh, this goes for all ages, you're underneath constant stress, right? So you are you're always wondering when your next meal is coming from. You may not know where you're going to sleep. You don't know what's going to happen the next day. Uh, I was... I didn't think I was going to go to college the day that I was evicted anymore. Uh, you you basically have no more future. You have only the present. And humans aren't meant to live in a constant state of fight or flight or what's going to happen next. So we know the physical toll that constant stress takes on people in general. We know that burnout is one of those uh, one of those outcomes. But we also know that you begin to feel more agitated. You suffer from chronic fatigue. You can't focus. You're more prone to get sick. And so... When you now transfer this to the state of a child, man, you're going to have students who, again, can't focus. It's going to be extra hard for them to pay attention in class because they're exhausted. And even if they got some kind of sleep last night, they probably don't feel the greatest. Their attitudes might unfortunately not be the greatest. There's going to be a lack of motivation because the only thing they want to do right now is just put their head on their desk. And they also are probably going to be hungry, too. They've also experienced trauma. If you've experienced eviction, either from your home or from a shelter or bouncing from um, one foster home to the next, you've lost a lot of those 
a lot of those supports that just having stability provides, you've experienced some kind of loss. And chances are, as a kid experiencing homelessness, you've experienced this loss repeatedly and you don't know when it's going to happen again. You don't know how long you're going to get to stick around school or how long you'll have certain friends. You may not even be able to form stronger human connections because what's the mm. point it's going to get taken away from you anyways so there's there's a lot that honestly goes into students and young kids experiencing homelessness for prospective teachers the number one piece of advice i would say is please be empathetic and please ask like it's one of the i would say that that's one of the biggest barriers that no one asks you honestly how are you doing most just assume that, oh, well, that's my problem, student, <laughs> and they're having a bad day today, or they're not going to get any better. It's honestly looking at it from a growth mindset, both at your student and also to help them see that too. Always be understanding. Absolutely. That was Sarah Fay, peer navigator for Safe Place for Youth, Jennifer Myers, an advocate for fostering homeless youth, and Angela M. Sanchez, an alum and board member of School on Wheels, Inc. All three were homeless as teenagers. After the break, we continue with our special hour discussing the intersection of homelessness and mental health with a panel of specialists from local organizations that work with homeless youth. That's coming up when Take Two continues. Stay with us. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC. I'm A. Martinez. We pick back up with our conversation on the intersection of youth, homelessness, and mental health. Our next guests are all experts who work with homeless youth in L.A. Daniel Ballin is clinical director at Covenant House California in L.A., which aims to provide sanctuary and other essential services. Aaron Casey is director of programs for My Friend's Place Los Angeles, a comprehensive resource center for youth for homeless youth ages 12 to 25. And Dr. Diane Tanaka is medical director of the Homeless Adolescent and Young Adult Wellness Center Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Now, Dr. Tanaka started us off by talking about how many of these young people end up homeless. As we heard from the young people who spoke previous to our panel, uh, there's a variety of reasons. I think there isn't a monolith. Angela used that word and it really summarized this perfectly. But I think, and I can speak to the Southern California experience, I think it is not that much difference nationally. So there's three kind of main buckets the way I think about it is one, there can be family discord or there's a change in family income. And right now with the COVID pandemic, that's something that's really causing me a lot of concern because we know that a lot of parents, guardians, grandparents had to either cut back on their hours of work or they actually lost their jobs. And so that really causes concern for me about how well are they going to be able to hold on to their housing. Number two could be... um, Issues around young people who maybe through their family circumstances, their families cannot have them remain with them in their families. So that could be like what Jennifer referenced, a parent who ended up with a substance use problem or maybe is struggling with their own mental health issues. Or what we see quite a bit of in the Hollywood area are young people who identify in the LGBTQ community who unfortunately may face 
familial rejection and are either pushed out or made to feel unwelcome at home um, and either have to leave or choose to leave as a result. And, um, and then there's the category that Jennifer spoke so eloquently about, which is young people who are growing up in the foster care system, typically through really no fault of their own. Erin Casey, uh, My Friend's Place serves youth uh, ages 12 to 25. What can you tell us about the young people that you see and, and what their immediate needs uh, are? Yeah, uh, thanks for the question. I, I guess I also just want to say, and I know Dr. T and Daniel well enough that I think they might join me in this sentiment, but while we are a group of really committed professionals to um, to this issue, the expert panel was the expert, was the panel we just heard, right? Those young people are really the experts on this issue. Um, and it is just our honor and privilege to be able to, to know such young people. Um, so yeah, the young people that make up the MFP community, um, particularly what has always been true for my friend's place, um, we all of um, Dr. T, Daniel, and I work in organizations that are part of the Hollywood Homeless Youth Partnership. And my friend's place generally is a drop-in center that is serving some of the more vulnerable young people that traditionally aren't always succeeding in um, shelter situations um, because of mental and behavioral health and, and other concerns. So the young people that my friend's place sees and serves and most importantly loves um, are young people that come to us definitely with the experience of homelessness, but like the, um, the panel before us, right, this is homelessness was not their standalone traumatic experience. Um, so many of our young people have um, have complex, 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 complex childhood traumatic experiences. And homelessness is just the result of that. Um, and, you know, in, in a very basic way, what my friend's place tries to do when we talk about mental health is really, and this is from, this is not Erin Casey's words, right? This is the wisdom of trauma-informed care, which is a philosophy of care that all of our organizations um, really um, endorse. And that is, it, there's a fundamental dis difference between asking a young person, like, what's your story? What's happened to you? Versus like, what's wrong with you? And I think part of what needs to shift when we're talking about mental health is that we, we do, we have stigmatized it. All of us have mental health. All of us have periods of wellness and all of us have periods of injury. Um, but sometimes when we're talking about the issue of mental health, we're doing it in this very pathological way. So the youth of my friend's place, many of them absolutely have mental health diagnoses, and we don't pathologize that. We understand it to be a very normal response to their life story. And I can totally see, Erin, if someone gets asked that question, what's wrong with you, how someone might shrink away and not seek the help that could actually make a difference. Um, Daniel, how does this experience of being homeless affect the mental and emotional health of the young people that you see at Covenant House? Well, I, I think it's quite significant. Uh, when we have youth come into our, our program here at Covenant House, we do a biopsychosocial assessment and ask them a lot of questions so we can get to know them in a variety of ways. And we also uh, ask them about their traumatic experiences because we want them to know that that is part of what we hope to address while they're living with us and, and in our program. And along with the various child abuse they might have suffered from or poverty or change of homes, uh, homelessness uh, is a significant stressor in their lives. And when we ask them kind of of all your stressful events, what do you feel is most significant? Very often it's the homelessness itself that they are most fearful of and has been most traumatic. Um, it also explains why sometimes they're very worried about the, the rules in the program and if they do something wrong, will they get kicked out? Uh, so we really try to put them at ease that they are safe at Covenant House, that we do love them, that we are here for them to help them through. Uh, they could make mistakes and still uh, work with us. And even after they uh, move into the community and transition, that we are still here for them and we'll work with them to help them adjust to life in the community after they've been in our residential programs. Dr. Tanaka, this uh, question comes from the audience. Um, what should we know about the potential long-term effects of homelessness on one's mental health, even after they have found some housing stability? That's a great question. So, 
you know, I'm glad that we're focusing on mental health because, and here I am as a medical doctor, which I'm very honored to be here to be included because I am not a psychologist. I am not a psychiatrist. I'm a pediatrician by training, as I stated. And really, I want to just put out there that mental health is healthcare, right? All of this is healthcare. And the mind body divide really doesn't serve any of us well. So, to get to the audience member's question, I would say that being homeless and being forced to experience homelessness, right? This this isn't something anybody chooses to do. And as Aaron referenced the adverse childhood experiences, there's a lot of research around that. And what we're talking about with the common ones people think about are if you experienced abuse at a young age and it was pervasive and severe, right? That's complex trauma. Those things lead to already that you don't feel the world is a safe place, right? And you need to be hypervigilance is something that comes around with being abused. It also comes around with being unhoused, right? Living on the streets is not easy. You can, you know, you have to look for threats from your environment all the time. That could be other humans. It could be police coming. It could be, you know, unleashed animals. It's a lot of different things that are going on. Plus, you add in not being able to get consistent sleep. I think that was referenced by the young people who just spoke. But I want to highlight that because not being able to get good sleep has all sorts of health impacts, including uh, most importantly on your memory and your ability to learn. So if this is occurring at a young age and then you become housed later, First good news is it does not have to be permanent, right? This is why I went into pediatrics, is the brain is plastic. It can change over time. It's why therapy is so critical. And as I'm sitting on this panel with two excellent therapists, both Daniel and Aaron, I see the effects of this every day. So having a young person establish stable housing, having stable food, that's nutrition coming in getting good sleep, getting therapy, then you know what? They go on and they are resilient and they are strong and they can have a really good adulthood. Like all three of those young people were super impressive and I think they highlight that. Now, not all young people, unfortunately, are able to access those resources. So if they aren't, then there can be long-term health impacts um, such as difficulties learning, they may not grow as well, right? If you're malnourished through most of your adolescence or even your childhood, um, you may never have good sleep. You may have insomnia. The risk of being depressed goes up, right? Anxiety disorders really go up. And post-traumatic stress disorder is another issue we see really manifest in a lot of the young people we work with who are experiencing homelessness compiled with or, or combined with all these other sources of trauma, such as being abused or, or having um, insecure attachments. Really, really important. I don't think we talk about this enough in our country about the importance of secure attachments, um, starting from a young age that you could feel the light world is a safe place. And if my parent, if I cry, they will soothe me. If I'm angry, they will talk to me and help me de-escalate, right? But if I get angry and my parents angry then in return, that's a scary place to be at. If I'm crying and they ignore me, that's a scary place to be at. So lots of health impacts uh, that can result from this. That's Dr. Diane Tanaka, Medical Director of the Homeless Adolescent and Young Adult Wellness Center, Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Also with us, Danielle Ballin, Clinical Director at Covenant House California in L.A., Aaron Casey, Director of Programs for My Friend's Place Los Angeles. We'll continue right after the break. Flood warnings across Coachella Valley. The journalists of LAist 
work for you. I'm Aaron Stone, the climate emergency reporter at LAist. Desalination really should be considered as a last resort. I bring you the information and connections you need to understand, cope with, and prepare for the changes caused by the climate emergency. Potential for what's called land spouts, which are basically like mini tornadoes. LAist, independent journalism, fact-based journalism. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC. I'm A. Martinez. We're continuing our conversation on the intersection of youth homelessness and mental health. And we're talking with Daniel Ballin, Clinical Director at Covenant House California in L.A., Erin Casey, Director of Programs for My Friend's Place in Los Angeles, and Dr. Diane Tanaka, Medical Director of the Homeless, Adolescent, and Young Adult Wellness Center Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Erin, this past year, I mean, my goodness, it's been a, a challenge for a lot of people, but in particular with the young people that you work with, what challenges has it presented? Have you seen and how have you been able to help them? So with the young people that, that we were serving, part of what I just think is important to talk about um, when we're talking about um, mental wellness and trauma is that it is a privilege of our wellness and to Dr. Tanaka's earlier point of our earliest childhood experiences, it's a privilege to be a person who knows how to connect with another human being. It is a privilege to be someone who feels safe and settled enough to get curious, to learn, right, to to take on a new challenge. And even, I think, as um, our panelists talked about, you know, the for our young people, the what we see time and time again, no matter kind of what their their personal narrative is, is there's really this fundamental belief that they might not live to see age 25. Mm. And COVID definitely made that all the more true for young people. So it's it's been a lot. Um, and we are we feel really good that we were able to maintain connections with some of the young people that are the most vulnerable. Um, and we're really looking forward to bringing them even closer in. Daniel, this uh, next question comes from uh, audience member Jeff Schaefer in Santa Monica. Do you find that there is a stigma about mental health issues? And if so, how do you help young people overcome that to get the help they might need? Yeah, thank you. That's a that's an excellent question. Uh, there's, there's definitely stigma around mental health, I think, in, in all populations. Uh, it is something that just now we're beginning to talk more of, and it's very helpful to have uh, people in the community that we know uh, come out and talk about mental illness um, and their struggles with that. I think um, one of the things that that really is important around mental health is to start with safety and connection and not with uh, identifying someone with their mental health struggle. And I think here at Covenant House, one of the reasons we have a lot of youth who seek out mental health support is that we really make it about the connection. They see the therapists on campus interacting with them, playing basketball with them, or being at various events. So we, are, we humanize ourselves. The therapists humanize ourselves in our various interactions. And that's usually where, where the therapy begins, is where the youth are feeling like, okay, I, I'm getting to know these people, and I feel safe sitting with them and starting to talk about some really challenging things that have gone on in my life, or struggles that I'm having today, or things I'm thinking about my future. So I think we we really try to approach it as um, not just a, you know using the term mental health, but looking at therapy and the, the various wellness activities we have as, as normalized that we all need this. Uh, we also have put a lot of time and effort into training all of our staff uh, to be able to sit and talk with our youth and listen to them within their scope and support them because sometimes the most important conversations are gonna happen at three o'clock in the morning or the the important relationship is with the cook or the security guard. Uh, So we really look at mental health treatment as as a milieu, as a whole environment and community here that's not just about the therapeutic hour with the therapist. If that happens, that's also a real positive and we encourage all of our youth to do it. the therapy alone without the whole community on board uh, will only take us so far. We only got a, a few minutes left, but I want to get uh, one question in for each of you before we go. Um, when it comes to what can be done better, Aaron, let's talk about what would you like to see change in how homeless youth are cared for in this uh, county? 
that's a million dollar question, eh? I, <laughs> I think there's so much. I, I think part of it, <laughs> I think part of it, and those of us, again, who have been doing this, I think one of the big things is just there's, it, it doesn't serve the issue and it doesn't serve the young people to simplify this issue. So, um, just as, you know, as many different stories there are, there's also some different solutions. So cookie cutter solutions don't work. Um, I would also say, you know, when we think about homelessness, we see we see housing as a component of one's wellness, right? One can't be well when their basic needs aren't met and housing is a fundamental human right, but also we can't shortcut healing. So we have to make sure that we have programs that invest in people and particularly young people where this can just be a temporary stop on their journey. Housing insecurity can be temporary, but we have to invest in them in the long run. And we need funders and program outcomes that also understand that. And also a big one for me is that it should be a young person's birthright to fail. And it shouldn't have huge consequence. They shouldn't lose their housing because they broke curfew. I broke curfew a lot and I was never kicked out of my home. I came home under the influence and I wasn't kicked out, 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 out of my home. So part of this is really if, if programs like ours need to be the replacement family system, then we need to act like family systems, which is caring for people even when they break curfew and when they do really age appropriate things. Dr. Tanaka, what's uh, one thing that you'd like to see changed? Ooh, like Aaron, this is a complex question yeah. and I would have a lot of answers. I'll stay in my lane as a physician and stay just looking at the roots of homelessness and what can lead to people becoming unhoused. And um, I'm going to be a little bit out there, but healthcare has to be affordable. Um, like housing is a, a fundamental human right, so is health care. And that includes adequate coverage for mental health care. Uh, mental health care oftentimes is out of reach financially for many families, especially lower income families. And so I would like to see the system change where um, people would not have to go bankrupt uh, because they're accessing health care, whether that's physical or mental health. And also, uh, would be able to access high quality, low barrier, affordable health care uh, for anybody. Daniel, what about you? One thing that uh, you'd like to see changed? Yeah, well, I definitely agree with my colleagues. And I think I would add that I think our mental health system uh, has to stop looking at the people we work with and serve uh, through the mental health lens. And what I mean by that is that sometimes in our systems, uh, to bill for services, you have to meet medical necessity, have a diagnosis, uh, prove that you are suffering enough to get the help. And I think that's, that really uh, turns away a lot of people who want the help, but don't want to be stigmatized and don't want to have to prove uh, right off the bat they are in need of services. Uh, in my mind, if the mental health system could simply say those who are asking for help will receive it, regardless of the level of acuity or problems that they have. I think that would go a long way to minimizing or eliminating stigma and just make it open to anybody who wants the help will get the help. That was Daniel Ballin, Clinical Director at Covenant House California in L.A., Aaron Casey, Director of Programs for My Friend's Place Los Angeles, and Dr. Diane Tanaka, Medical Director of the Homeless, Adolescent, and Young Adult Wellness Center Children's Hospital Los Angeles. To view our whole program on youth homelessness and mental health, you can check it out at kpcc.org slash events. All right, that's going to do it for take two. If you missed any part of it, just head on over to wherever you get your podcasts. There we will be waiting to be heard by you. You can find me on Twitter at amartinezla. That's at amartinezla. Good for Twitter and Instagram. Uh, take two is back tomorrow at two. Marketplace is coming up next. <laughs>